Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. Um, last week we began, uh, I did an introduction into the book of Genesis, and then after that um, we went through and got through a few of the days of creation, and uh, rather than jumping right in where we left off, I kind of wanted to go back and do a recap uh, of some of the things that we talked about last week, and just touch on a few things and work our way into where we're at today. So I'm be- going to begin in the beginning, there in uh, verse 1 of Genesis 1. Verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in the very beginning, we have the creation of time. God created time. We talked about that last week. Uh, And notice that he created the heavens, which is plural, and the earth. So not only did God create time in the beginning, but God also created space. And remember, God exists outside of time and space. We're confined to time. We're confined to space. But God is outside of that. God created that. And uh, it says in the beginning, God created. And uh, that word created, it's the Hebrew word bara. It's a verb, and it means to create, uh, as it's translated in your Bibles there. Uh, but it's always, God is always the subject of this verb in the Bible. And we know here that God created, uh, you know, he created something from nothing, basically. Evolution is just the opposite. You know, everything came from nothing, basically. But here, uh, or excuse me, the other way around. But anyways, God created everything from nothing. And so we move on to verse 2. It says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I was uh, on the phone with a friend, uh, an old friend of mine uh, earlier this week, and I was kind of describing uh, where we're at in the process of this renovation and uh, kind of just going, you know, saying where we're at in the Bible and stuff. And he goes, wow, your church is really biblical. It's, it's without form and void right now. And I'm like, yeah, that's, I guess that's true if you look around. It's starting to, starting to take shape, but yeah, I guess we're, you're in a very biblical building right now. Anyway, so the earth was out without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Verse 4, and God saw the light, that it was good, and God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. So the evening and the morning were the first day. We're introduced to a phrase here in, uh, in this, this passage here, and it's going to be repeated throughout the creation week, and that is that God looks at creation and he says, man, it's good. It was good. And when we get to day six and day seven, we're going to discuss the significance of this phrase. Um, so this is the end of the first day of creation. The word day is the Hebrew word yom. It can either mean a 24-hour day or a time period um, of days. For example, the day of the Lord is not one 24-hour day, but it's a time period of days. Um, but here in, uh, in, in, in Genesis chapter 1 here, the day, I believe, and, and other people believe, it's a 24-hour day. Um, there is a theory called the day-age theory where uh, people think that the each of these creation these days it's it's almost like a it's just a, I forgot the word but it's like a picture it's not really an actual 24-hour day and, and it signifies a time period of a large time period where God uh, used maybe used evolution to create the things and uh, that we see about us today it's called the day age theory we did talk about it at length last week so I don't want to keep going into it um, but if that was in fact true and each of these days is not a 24-hour day but a period well it's interesting that here god called the light day and the darkness night of that day of that first day so what part of the age would be day and what part of the that age would be night it just doesn't make sense to me anyways Um, but notice here that light is created on day one and it's not the sun it's light, God himself. And, uh, you know, he's the source of the light. And if you think about it, when we get to New Jerusalem, New Jerusalem won't have the sun. There won't be any need for the sun because Jesus himself will be the source of light in the New Jerusalem. So it's not that strange of a concept for us. So God created light. 
Verse 6, Then God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Thus God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. This is a very interesting passage of Scripture. Again, we talked about it a little bit last week. Um, but there's a, a theory. Oh, let me finish verse 8. And God called the firmament heaven, so the evening and the morning were the second day. And there's a theory about uh, how, what, what God is talking about, the waters above the firmament and the waters below the firmament. And it's called uh, the canopy, uh, the vapor canopy theory, the greenhouse theory. I don't know the technical name for it. Um, but basically, it, it's been postulated. Or, or, or it's theorized that what is being described is that blue in the center there uh, would be the earth and the water, and then there's waters uh, that are below the firmament covering covering what would be the earth once it's formed, and then the expanse, which would be like the atmosphere, and then there'd be waters above the atmosphere. Um, and uh, if this is true, again, it's a theory because the Bible doesn't say it, but it's it's a theory. Um, if it's true. It would have blocked harmful cosmic radiation to penetrate. The light would be able to penetrate through, and the heat would be trapped within this, uh, the, within this canopy, and it'd be kind of like a greenhouse, basically, perfect for growing things. Um, it seems to fit the biblical narrative because if you think about it, before the flood, before the waters that were above, uh, before they came down during the flood, um, this would have the harmful radiation and everything that would be prevented from coming down to earth would it could possibly explain why man lived so many years uh, during that time period. Um, it also seems to fit from an archaeological standpoint. They found woolly mammals and uh, different thing, fossils um, with tropical vegetation in the Arctic and in the Antarctic. And so uh, at one time, the entire globe must have been, uh, you know, a a tropical climate. Again, it's a theory. Um, It's interesting. Uh, There's a lot of creationists that have actually backed off from their believing that this is the case. Um, There's a lot of detractors. I was reading up on some of their arguments. One of the things, one of the arguments is that the atmospheric pressure would be too great below the canopy. Um, during that in that expanse, if that was true, and then the trapped heat would become too great um, for the inhabitants on the earth during that time, and also they say that uh, you know the Bible talks about during the flood that the the windows of heaven opened up and, and the waters came from came from above, and also the waters in the earth came from below, and it 's just this big deluge, this big upheaval um, during the flood of noah and uh, they say, well, if it rained for 40 days and 40 nights, it's, there's just not enough. It wouldn't be that, that much water up in the atmosphere to support uh, 40 days of rain. Um, and they, as a result, a lot of creation scientists are backing away, and they're like, well, maybe this isn't true. Um, I did come across a, uh, a scientist. His name is Larry Vardaman, and he wrote a paper for the Institution of Creation Research, and he started talking about uh, the, the, the model, the computer model that the scientists are using to kind of say, well, this can't be possible, and he says it's still a viable, it's still a viable model. It's still a viable theory, um, but again, it may or may not. Nobody was there. Well, we weren't there to know, so um, take it or leave it, but that's one of the theories. Verse 9, Then God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. And God called the dry land earth, and the gathering together of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Um, It's possible, again, this is another thing that the Bible doesn't specifically tell us, but it's possible that all the land was in one mass. It was like a supercontinent. All the oceans were in one place. Um, It would explain how all the different animals made it onto the ark, like the kangaroo that's now in the land down under. You know, you don't find kangaroos in, in Turkey or in the Middle East or anything, and yet they must have been on the ark. And so how could the, one of the arguments is how could a kangaroo that's only found in Australia, make it on the ark in the Middle East. Well, if it was all one landmass, it makes sense. So, again, another theory. Verse 11. Then God said, Let the earth bring forth grass, the herb that yields seed, and the fruit tree that yields fruit according to its kind, whose seed is in itself, uh, whose seed is in itself on the earth. And it was so. 
And the earth brought forth grass, the herb that yields seed according to its kind, and the trees that yields fruit whose seed is in itself according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. There's a new phrase that's introduced here. Uh, Plants are created with seed in itself, and the Bible says, according to its kind. Now, God allows variation within a kind. I mean, uh, you know, there's University of Minnesota has been, you know, they've been doing some stuff to, to create different apples, you know, basically. So you have variations of apples that man has actually, you know, done. Uh, but that's within a kind. It's not outside of it. So God allows variation within a kind, but, um, but not, you know, a, a, an apple evolving into like an orange, for example. Um, that phrase, comparing apples to oranges, always has and always will mean the same thing. You know, you're talking about two different things. Um, it's interesting. They found an orchid pollen on a sting or a clump of orchid pollen on a stingless bee and it was encased in amber that is supposedly multiple million i think like 75 million uh, years old and it's perplexed evolutionary biologists because orchids supposedly evolved much later than this 75 million years or this this time period that they found it on this stingless bee. Um, And that's the problem that they keep running into. They keep finding fully formed and even identifiable plants, or many times they're identifiable plants and animals, down to the species level. They've never found transitional fossils. Now, I know some evolutionists would argue that, that they found them, but the reality is they haven't. They haven't. So plants are created on day three, fully mature, and it's interesting, they've got the seeds in themselves. In other words, God didn't just plant a field and say, okay, we've got to wait a year, or we've got to wait seven years till this tree produces fruit or whatever it is. Man, God created the earth mature and ready. Um, some people say with the appearance of, of, of age. I don't know if that's necessarily the appearance, but he just created it ready, fully functioning, ready to go, ready to be inhabited by Adam. And of course, that brings up questions, you know, uh, did trees have growth rings? Well, I I don't know, maybe they didn't, but nobody was there to cut them down to see, so who knows. Um, But it's interesting, the soil was already nutrient rich. It was already just perfectly ready to go. So, verse 13, so the evening and the morning were the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. Then God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. It's kind of funny because God's talking about they created the sun, created the moon, and oh, by the way, he also made the stars. And we look out there and like there's millions and millions of stars. This innumerable. uh, And it's just a comment. Yeah, he made the stars also. Verse 17. God set them in the firmament of the heavens to give light on the earth and to rule over the day and over the night and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. So the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So it's interesting. God created the sun and the moon and the stars for different reasons. And it says here to divide the day from the night, to give that division for signs and seasons, for days and years, and to give light on the earth. And so if you think about it, the only reason God created, I won't say the only reason, but the reason that's given us here for God creating the sun, moon, and the stars was for the benefit of man who would be creating in just a couple days later. It was for man. It wasn't for God. It's like, well, I want this to look really, you know, he's creating it for Adam. It reminds me of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.9. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. If you can just imagine here, God hasn't, you know, we talked about last week, you know, God had a plan and a purpose. He already knew that he was going to create Adam. He already knew that Adam and Eve were going to fall. They were going to sin against him. He was even planning redemption before anything was even formed, before time even began. God was planning that. You were part of God's plan even before time began. 
Um, and so you could just imagine God's just, he's preparing this, this creation, you know, it's all beautiful, these stars. And, and it's not like God's like, man, this is beautiful. I love it. He, I can just imagine God thinking, man, wait till Adam sees this. Wait till he checks this out. Um, Keith Green, he was a musician, uh, minister, you know, he was an evangelist, a mission, uh, a musician. Uh, he died several years ago, but back in the 80s, I remember listening to him, uh, and there was a song that he would sing, but before he would sing it, he always introduced uh, kind of an introduction to the song, and, and he would talk about the beauty of creation. You know, you look around, look at the stars, and, you know, just, it's just creation is so fantastic. And he goes, you know, the Bible says it took God six days to create all that we see, that it's so beautiful and so wonderful. And yet Jesus told his disciples, man, he was going away to prepare a place for them. And it's been 2,000 years, and he's preparing a place. And he, and he says, man, if, if, if just think about it. If, if what we see that's so beautiful, and God created it in just six days, can you imagine what he's doing in 2,000 years to create heaven for you and I to dwell in? He says, if, if, if creation just took six days and he's been gone for 2,000 years, he goes, man, this place must be a garbage dump compared to what God has created, what he has waiting for us in heaven. Wow, it shows up. I wasn't sure if it would. Um, if, I don't know if you can see that. There's a little blue dot in the middle of that screen, and that's actually where we live. You are there. <laughs> it's uh, Earth seen from 4 billion miles away. The photograph was taken by the Voyager space probe. And uh, I uh, was part of getting ready for my studying for this, this week. I went and I watched. A, there's a book out. But they also have a movie out. It's called Privileged Planet. I don't know how many of you ever seen it or maybe read the book. Um, but uh, it's on YouTube. I discovered that. So you can catch it on YouTube. It's called The Privileged Planet. And uh, they have some very interesting uh, facts regarding your and my place or the Earth's place in the universe. Um, they point out, again, some fascinating facts. Um, as they say in real estate, you know, when you're buying a place, what is the one thing the real estate agent always says? It's location. Location is important. Well, as far as the earth goes, it's location, location, location. It's the same principle is the same for the earth as well. The earth is located in what is known as the habitable zone. And scientists have nicknamed it the Goldilocks Zone. How many of you remember Goldilocks? Remember, remember Goldilocks? That was one of my favorite stories uh, when I was a little kid. Remember Papa's, bear, or Papa's Bear's bed was too hard for Goldilocks, or just too hard. Uh, the chair was too hard. You know, the porridge was too hot. Mama's bear, uh, Mama Bear's bed was too soft. The chair was too cushy. The, 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 the food was, the porridge was too cold. But Baby's Bear's beds were just right. You know, and you guys know the story. I don't, nobody going to sleep yet? Good. <laughs> um, well, the earth is just right. It's in that Goldilocks zone. It's in the, ha- in, in the habitable zone in our solar system. It is just right for life. Listen to this. If earth was 5% closer to the sun, the earth's temperature would be 900 degrees Fahrenheit. You couldn't live in it. If it was just 5% closer to the sun, it'd be like Venus. If the earth was 20% farther away from the sun, the earth would be surrounded in clouds of CO2 clouds of gas, and the earth's uh, surface would be ice and cold, just like Mars. Just 20% difference. Not only that, the sun is exactly the right size for planet earth. If the sun was smaller... The earth would need to be closer to be in that Goldilocks zone. And if the earth was closer to the sun, the scientists say that the, its orbit would synchronize with the sun's orbit. In other words, you know, the sun's still, earth's circulating around the sun, but it's also rotating on its axis. And what the scientists say, if it was just that much closer, uh, if it was, you know, if the sun was smaller and it had to be closer in, the gravitational pull on the, on the sun would be so strong that the earth would no longer rotate on its axis. It'd still rotate around but would no longer be spinning so one side of the sun would always be face or one side of the earth would always be facing the sun getting all that radiation all the time the other side would be in perpetual darkness and cold and freezing not only that but the earth's crust is just the right thickness it ranges from between 4 and 30 miles thick and those relatively thin tectonic plates, you know, the ones that are moving around, they allow the Earth's internal temperature to keep the Earth's core in a moving liquid state. 
And the movement of that liquid, liquid iron creates a magnetic field around the earth. And that magnetic field that's created around the earth is just enough that it protects the earth from charged particle radiation that's also known as solar wind. Um, if the earth was smaller, it would have a smaller magnetic field and all those rays, it, we wouldn't be able to, you know, it wouldn't, the rays would be just be hitting our, our atmosphere and they would be stripping away our atmosphere. Not only that, but the moon is exactly the right size for our planet. Uh, the moon stabilizes Earth's rotation on its axis, and as a result, it also gives us moderate climate changes. Now, we're in Minnesota, so what's moderate? You know, it's all relative, but moderate. Uh, it's a moderate, it gives us moderate climate changes. The Earth's atmosphere has exactly the right oxygen-nitrogen mix that's necessary for life. The oceans, the oceans regulate the Earth's temperature, and of course, water is necessary for life. Not only that, but here's the, this is the most amazing thing to me. Our Earth is positioned in the best place in the galaxy to view and to discover the rest of the universe around us. It's in the best place to view all of the universe around us. And think about it. All that happened with the Big Bang. I mean, all that happened, just wow, it's amazing that all these things fit into place perfectly, and here we are today. See, but that's what scientists would tell you. That's what they're telling our kids in school. We know that it was God. God designed us perfectly in the right place in that Goldilocks zone. It gives more meaning to this verse. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech and night under night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and, the wor- and their words to the end of the world. Verse 20, then God said, let the waters abound with an abundance of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the face of the firmaments of the heavens. That word uh, abound, it, it says let the waters abound. It literally means swarm. Let the, let, the, let the waters swarm with abundance of living creatures. So God created sea creatures and every living thing that moves with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. This is now the second time that the Hebrew word bara is used. God creating something, something new that only God can create. Now we know from the beginning there, in the beginning he created from nothing, the heavens and the earth, all the elements that we know, uh, this entire universe, he created that from nothing, but then he formed the firmament. And he formed the earth and the waters, the sun, the moon, and the stars. But he used those elements that he created from nothing. He, fl- he formed plant life from those same elements. He now forms, in this verse 20 and 21, the marine creatures and the birds. But why did they use that, hurry, that word, ba-ra, that's only attributed to God? Because there's something new and something completely different that God created. And that is he created animals with a soul with a sense of consciousness. They have emotions. They have a mind. Plants do not have a mind. I mean, you can sing to your plants all you want, and, you know, they say if you talk nice to your plants, they'll grow better. It's probably just your breath. I I don't know. You know, who knows? But uh, I guarantee plants do not have a consciousness like animals do. I mean, have you ever come home from work and your tomato plant started like... (laughs) getting all excited about your home, your home, your home, you know, jumping around and whoo-hoo, you know, barking, you know, your plant, your tomato plant just, it's there, you know. But your dog does that, right? Remember Dino, man? I said, it's, it's funny, when our kids were really young, um, I, I had a, a, a guy, a co-worker once, he came to my house for some reason, and, and uh, I came home, and uh, all of our kids were really, really young, and it was just like Fred Flintstone coming home. I, I walked in the door, and these kids just, all four of them, just like, you know, ran and jumped on me, and, and, uh, and he's like looking at me, he goes, man, this is just like the Flintstones, man, <laughs> except they're not Dino, they're kids, but anyways, tomato plants don't do that. They don't have a consciousness, but animals do. That's, so that's what God created here. So God created sea creatures and everything, living thing that moves. Um, 
and with which the waters abounded according to their kind, and every winged bird according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God created the great sea creatures. In our Bible, um, it's translated, or in, in the King James Version, it's translated uh, whales, but the Hebrew word is tanyan, or tannin, and it can also mean a dragon, a serpent, or a sea monster. Now, marine animals and birds here are created on the same day. And again, this is another, it flies in the face of evolutionary theory. Their sequence of, of what came first, um, it doesn't fit. Um, think about every species of fish and every species of, of any of the living animals in the ocean and, and the species of birds, how many thousands, and I, I don't know how many there are, but how many thousands of species there were, and here God created them all within one 24-hour period. It's just it's fascinating. Verse 22, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply in the earth. So the evening and the morning were the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature according to its kind, cattle and creeping thing and beasts of the earth, each according to its kind. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to its kind, cattle according to its kind, and everything that creeps on the earth according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Again here, we see that phrase repeated, according to its kind. If you can see that, you know, a fish is a fish, a cat is a cat, a dog is a dog. You're never going to see a, a fish that's trans, you know, it's, it's evolved into a, a whippet or a Siamese cat. A duck will never evolve into an alligator. And of course, I'm, I'm being facetious. I was looking for pictures and I found these ones. Um, if the evolutionary theory were true, where are those transitional, transitional species in the fossil record? They, they can't find them. Now that upper right pick, um, there you see on the far, far side you see a chicken and the other side you see a dinosaur. That's based, supposedly it's based on a recent discovery scientists have made that they think proves that chickens evolved into dinosaurs or either that or it's dinosaurs evolved into chickens, one way or the other. Uh, but they think that those two things are, are related, those two animals are related. Um, and you know the interesting thing is a lot of times the evolutionists, the paleontologists, you know, they're going to find similar bone structures that are unique to certain species. And then they take that and they postulate, they speculate that, that that similarity means that the one species must have evolved to the other species. But think about this. God is not only an intelligent designer, but he's also a wise designer. I mean, is there any reason why he wouldn't uh, replicate a good design into another species? There's no reason why he wouldn't. Again, um, I have, they have yet to find a Chickasaur fossil. So, you know, once they find that, well, we can have another discussion, but they haven't. You know, it's interesting. They have found millions of these guys, and they've found, I'm having fun with this, by the way, and they've had million, found millions of these guys, but they have found none of these. And so if there's millions of the chimpanzees and millions of the men, where are those transitional species fossils? They, they just, they can't, where are they? They're not there. What about the dinosaurs? <laughs> now that could be a study in and of itself, and uh, we're going to touch on it more when we get to Genesis 7, talking about the flood. Um, but, you know, they've found dinosaur fossils, and obviously some of them are ex you know they're extremely huge and some of these dinosaurs hatched from eggs and so you'd think that a dinosaur egg like this great big dinosaur you'd think that the egg would be the size of like a volkswagen bug you know a bug or something um the largest known fossil egg belongs to the extinct elephant bird and that's not even a dinosaur but that egg could hold almost 2.35 gallons of water. So it's not the, not the great, that's the biggest one that they found. The largest dinosaur fossil egg is only about 10 inches long and can hold less than a gallon of water. Now, the Miasaura eggs have been found in Montana. Miasaura is a type of dinosaur. The adult Miasaura grew to about 30 feet long, but its eggs, they're pear-shaped, and they're only about two inches wide and seven inches long. And so, like, how could this huge dinosaur come from this little tiny egg? 
Well, we know today living reptiles that grow throughout their lives. Um, and it's possible, you know, Adam and Eve, Adam and his uh, descendants there, all the way down to around Noah's age, Noah's time frame, they lived hundreds of years. In fact, was it Methuselah was like 969, isn't it? 969? He was the oldest living man uh, that, that's recorded in history. And it's possible that just as humans lived that long before the flood, that the dinosaurs may have just kept growing to these large sizes for several hundreds of years. It, it, that could be why. Now, the funny thing that I... Okay, this is the way I think, okay? So now you, get, you kind of get into the mind of Don here. Um, you know, they say, what is it, the soft cartilage, like your nose and your ears? Those, those things, they keep growing, right? As you get old. That's why the older you get, the bigger your nose gets, the bigger your ears get. Can you imagine what Methuselah looked like? Can you imagine that? 900 years? I mean, his nose probably like down to here, you know, cover his tie, you know, and, and uh, his ears. I mean, oh, man. <laughs> I feel bad for those guys. Hopefully there's nobody in here that has those big big barrel things, you know, because eventually they're going to have, like, you could probably skip rope with their little loops there under their ears. But <laughs> I'm sorry. If, if, if you're here, I, I'm sorry if I offended you. <laughs> the Holy Spirit just approached me or just convicted me. <laughs> All right. You know, and we're in Romans on Wednesday nights. And as the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 2, that God's attributes are clearly seen in creation. You know, the evolutionary theory says that man and animals all came from a simple cell that evolved from a primordial soup or goo uh, millions or even billions of years ago. Um, and when you look, when you see an image like this on the screen, to me... At first look, you look at it, and it looks like an artist's conception of some new motor that you'd see uh, in a manufacturing facility. Uh, for example, uh, if you know electric motors, uh, this looks extremely like a stator around an electric motor, and this looks like the rotor for electric motor that rotates around a magnetic field. There's a shaft here, and it looks like there's some bushings here. Uh, and if that rotates the way it looks like it rotates, then this must be some kind of a, you know, just a rotating arm or something. Well, you know what you're really looking at? You're looking at the flagellum of a bacterium. And that flagellum, it's the little green, it's like the green whip-like tail on the end of that bacterium. And it's what propels the bacterium to swim. And it looks just like an electric motor that we have in our, you know, it's like, and that just evolved by chance, guys. I mean, that just, you know, just happened. Amazing. Um, this is, um, well, let me, let me explain first before I show you this. Engineering, uh, you know, engineers, they design things like robots and stuff and automated equipment. It's kind of near and dear to my heart because I used to be an automated equipment technician. I used to repair robots and things like that. And, uh, you can make a stationary robot arm move really, really fast. And in the manufacturing environment, you're trying to produce you know, hundreds of things. Your automation, you want it to go as fast as it can go. Um, but you also have to have it accurate. So it's got to stop in certain places. Like if you're manipulating some small thing or you're like in an auto factory, if you're welding, it's got to stop in exactly the right spot. But you want it to go as fast as you can. Well, how do you stop something? I mean, you can't just like just put a dead stop because things are going to break, right? <clears throat> Metal, you know, the, the robot's arm's going to break or, or it's going to hit something and it's going to slam against something. So you need, to, uh, you need to slow something. You need it to move fast, but you need it to slow down just in time to stop at the right place. Um, and how do you do that? How do you get, get that to happen? Well, design, engineers have to design feedback into their systems, feedback, uh, a feedback loop. You have to have sensors or some ability to know when you're approaching a destination so you can slow down and stop at the exact location. You can't go from full on to full off. Things will break very, very quickly. So what is this picture of? This picture is of a head gimbal assembly. And after I, this was like top secret years ago when I worked in this company. So after I tell you, I have to kill all of you. But no, I'm just kidding. Um, but this is what you're looking at up there in the screen. So it's, it's, that's 
it's pretty small. And uh, I used to work on uh, robots and machinery that basically assembled this. And uh, I don't know if you can see it in the very low lowest part of the picture. Let me see if I can do a little thing here. Right there, there's some wire. Uh, there's four gold wires that are strung across this open spot right here. And, uh, and they're, they, they're, they're all the way up to here. And this is where the magnetic recording head is. And so they're, they'll later on, they'll be in the process, they'll be bonded to the, to the little gold pads on that thing. Um, but these, uh, gold wires, they're, they're finer than a human hair. Um, I forgot the, the, the dimensions, but they're, they're really, really small. And, uh, anyway, so they had a robot arm. It was called a stringer. And basically, it, it had a, uh, a spool of, of wire. It had two spools of gold wire. And uh, let me see if I have it in the next picture here. Yeah. So this is one of the robots I used to work on. So it's called a Puma robot, if you're familiar with the Puma robots. Um, but uh, anyways, uh, it had... Now, they don't show it on the end there. They show the wrist, the very bottom there. It says joint four. Um, but then on top of that, that's where your whoever would buy that, they would assemble their own little whatever it is, a hand gripper or whatever as well. Uh, this particular machine that we had um, had what was known as a stringer head. And the stringer head, it had basically spools like of, of gold um, wire, and it had like two threading needles. And uh, the 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 the, uh, the spools, they actually had electric tension on the spool, so there was always a tension on them. And uh, so then this machine, it would go really fast along that part that I was showing you, and it would wire, it would run, it, it would get the wires right below the little metal plastic, and it would go down to one spot, and then it would go down and do that, and it would spin around and twist, and it would cut off. Um, if the wire being strung got cut, which would happen frequently, all of a sudden, they would sense, hey, there's no more tension on that spool, and the thing would error out, and it would stop, it would move up, and it would get in this red light would flash, and they'd call me to go over and fix it. Um, sometimes the plastic part wasn't sitting right on the fixture, and they'd come in there, and it would bust things, you know, just smash into stuff. And, and, uh, and so they had to have sensors there and, and things that knew, you know, where they're at. Well, the Puma robot is programmed for certain movements in each joint of the, those joints that you see there. Um, they're controlled by DC servo motors. And so the motor provides feedback to the controller that tells it how far it's traveled. Again, in a manufacturing environment, you want that to be as fast as you, it can be, but it also has to be extremely precise, and it has to slow down and stop precisely. You can't miss because you start losing money when that happens. And so designing feedback is a very, very big and very important aspect of engineering. Well, have you ever tried to fl swat a fly during flight? You know, when it's flying around the room, you're like trying to catch it. It's like, I think I see it. I'm really bad at that. You know, a fly zooms around until it senses food, and it determines the direction, and then it flies until it arrives at that location. And as a fly flies, it has to choose where it's going to land. And have you ever noticed um, when the flies land? You never notice they, they don't, like, land and then, then run a few steps. I mean, when they land, they're, boom, they're right there, right? And it's fast, like, whoa. There it is, you know. Um, you don't see them, like, hit the edge of a table and then tumble off and fall off, or, or they land too short, you know, and they, they hit, hit, a, you know, hit a wall or something like that. Um, rarely, sometimes with the lights on, they do some weird stuff. But, um, but they usually don't, man. They usually stop precisely at the right spot at the right time. Um, for the fly... As it approaches that landing spot, it needs feedback. It has to control its speed. It has to allow its body to set down on the landing spot without overshooting it. And then think of it, you throw it into a windy situation. The fly now has to correct its course by visual. It has to understand. And it also has sensory. It feels the, the wind, the breeze. And so it has to adjust the speed and the power of its wings. And think about that. That all happened by chance through evolution. Termites. Here's another interesting thing. Now, we have carpenter ants out in this part of the neck of the woods, but out in California where I grew up, man, we have termites, you know, and they put tents over the big house and then they, they fumigate the house to kill the termites because termites eat wood. Well, they sort of eat wood. They don't actually eat wood. They chew wood, but they can't digest wood. 
They have a community of microorganisms inside their gut. And these microorganisms digest the cellulose of the wood and they release the nutrients that the termite can absorb. These microbes, they belong to three groups, bacteria, archaea, I don't know if that's pronounced right, and protozoans. They live in what's called an obligate symbiosis. In other words, they depend upon each other and they can't live without each other. So if you think about it, if one of these microorganisms that can't live without the other evolved before or separate of the other, how did they survive until they got together in the gut of this termite? How did the termite survive before the micro, you know, these microorganisms entered its gut? It just doesn't make sense. Here's another thing, fungus root. Maybe, maybe Dan knows about this. My, mycorrhizae is what it's called. I'm probably slaughtering the, the name. but um, this, uh, These fungi, they germinate from spores in the soil, and they form these really thin thread-like structures that they attach, they, grow, they attach to the roots and the plants, and then they grow into the roots of the plants. And once they're colonized, they grow out, and they spread out into the soil. Now, some fungus is bad for plants, but this one particularly is beneficial to the plant because what they do is they gather mineral nutrients from the soil that the roots, plant, the plant, the roots of the plants can't reach. And so these things, they're like extensions, and they, they gather nutrients in the soil, and they transport those nutrients back to the plant. Now, in return, the plant provides carbohydrates as a food source for the fungus. But here's the kicker. These, the, 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 the plant can survive without the fungus. But the fungus, or the fungi, um, he's not a fun guy, but fungi, um, they cannot get their own carbohydrates. They're completely dependent on the plant for food. So how could that have evolved? How could they have evolved if they are only dependent on plants for their survival? There, there's, there's no answers to that. Um, think about the circulatory system of animals, blood. You know, how did blood evolve? That's a fascinating thing to think about because, you know, an animal, uh, blood has that property where it coagulates, right? And think about that. If, if, at what point did that evolve? Because uh, before that property of coagulation evolved, then a plant, or, or not a plant, but an animal gets cut and it bleeds to death because it hasn't evolved, right? It's just, it doesn't make sense. Um, if, if you really want to get into it, there's a book out by Michael Behe. It's called um, Darwin's Black Box. And uh, I've, actually, I have it here somewhere. It's in a box. It's in a Don's gray box or brown box somewhere in the back here. Um, but um, we brought all our books from our library, and they're here somewhere. So um, I have that book, but I couldn't find it to loan it to you. <laughs> but I encourage you if, you, if you're interested, man, read that, because it's he talks about... Uh, He's a molecular biologist, and he talks about things that have been reduced down to a point where you, it's irreducible complexity. It's like evolution, there's no explanation for how these things could have evolved. Eyesight's another thing. How, does that, how did that evolve? Fascinating. Um, blubber. I've got a little bit of it. No, actually, I don't. I've got fat. Blubber's, it's, you know, they think of it as fat, but it's really not. Um, it's an, it's what you see on walruses and penguins and whales, um, those kind of sea creatures, it provides insulation. And the thing is, blubber is controlled um, by the animal controls the blubber's internal water content, concentration of lipids, and blood flow. And blubber is so effective that walruses can lie directly on Arctic ice in complete comfort. Even when it's like 40 degrees below zero, they, they, there's no issue. Um, penguins, they have even colder temperatures in Antarctica, and because they have blubber, uh, they, they're not affected by the cold. Now, whales, same thing with whales. They have blubber around them. In fact, I think theirs is like almost a foot thick. Um, and yet, so they've, they've got this insulating ability. They can go through the Arctic waters, you know, without any issues, but, you know, they migrate south to warm waters. Well, you know, if you've ever gone down, like, gone to Baja, Mexico or somewhere, and you wore in your parka, man, you'd you die, right, from, from overheating. Well, how do the whales, how do they not overheat? Well, God has created them with their bodies. Their bodies 
adjust that water content, adjust the lipids and the blood flow that allows them, it's like it regulates how much insulating factors there is in their blubber. And blubber isn't just an insulating thing. In an animal, blubber also has that high-fat energy content, so animals can draw on that energy for survival. Whales, they, sometimes they don't eat very much for days or months, like when they're breeding or when they're migrating. Um, so they can, they can draw on that energy, that high energy content. Blubber streamlines the bodies of these animals so that they can glide through the water with less effort, and as a result, they waste less energy. And it also provides buoyancy so these large animals, like the whales, they don't have to work constantly to keep themselves from sinking so they're not burning up energy. It's all it's, it's conserved there. And you think about it, that's all a process of evolution. It just came by chance. And do giraffes get headaches? You ever thought about that? <laughs> you know, I remember in grade school hearing about giraffes, right? They evolved these long necks because they had to reach the leaves on the tops of these trees. And so it's like, okay, um, why didn't they just grow long legs and keep short necks? I mean, it's like, what's the deal? Um, A giraffe's head weighs about 500 pounds. And its heart can be over two feet long. Huge heart. Um, It generates about two and a half times the blood pressure of humans in order, it has to because it has to push the blood all the way up that neck to the animal's brain. So you got all this blood pressure, this huge man, this 500 pound head. What happens when the giraffe has to bend over to drink water? Or, or all of a sudden it hears something down in the bushes by its feet and it's got to check out what's going on. Does it mean, does it pass out? You know, is it faint? The giraffe just, boop, you know, the blood pressure got to its head. God's designed the giraffe with a network of bypass and anti-pooling valves in its blood vessels that divert the blood away from its head. Not only that, but have you ever seen a giraffe with flabby legs? You know, just flabby, loose skin. No, giraffes' legs have tight skin around their legs that act kind of like those Tet socks or Ted socks, you know, those ones. Um, and they have thick blood vessels that prevent damage from that high blood pressure below the giraffe's neck. In fact, evidently NASA scientists have studied the giraffe's anatomy to help them develop gravity suits. They're looking at creation to understand how to develop these uh, high-tech gravity suits. And all this happened by chance because a giraffe saw the, you know, over millions and millions of years is trying to get to that branch up there to eat that tree or that leaf, you know. So what's the point? God's preparing his creation, and each day he ends with declaring, it is good. God saw that it was good. Next week, we'll explore the third time God, uh, the Bible uses the term bara. Again, God creates something new. And like I said earlier, it's, it's like creation up to this point is being prepared and awaiting his crowning creation. What's his crowning creation? It's a, I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 26. It's mankind. We're God's crowning creation. You know, Christmas is just around the bend, and of course now it feels like it, right? Because we have finally we've got snow. I, you know, I was sitting here doing worship. I was like, man, it's so pretty to be able to see the snow outside the windows. Um, but, you know, Christmas is around the corner. We know that because uh, Thanksgiving, you know, the stuff's out there in the stores already. Um, but... If you've ever wrapped Christmas presents for your kids or for your spouse or your brother or your sister, you know that excitement of you're wrapping and you're like, man, I can't wait to see the expression on their face when they open that up. Something that they've always wanted when they open man, I can't wait. I know as a dad, I'm always, always being excited about seeing the expression on the kids' faces. Uh, when we would do gift openings, sometimes we go to people's homes and it's like everybody just piles in and opens gifts and nobody knows who gave what or what. And it's like, it's just, it's gone in like 60 seconds. It's like this commotion, paper flying everywhere, kids running off screaming. And, you know, and uh, in our house, we used to do it one at a time. Okay. Because we want to watch the expression of these kids when they're opening up their gifts. And I can just picture God, the father, He's creating everything here. And he's thinking, man, I can't wait to see Adam's expression when he sees all this being prepared. 
It's anticipation of Adam opening his eyes. Think about that for the first time seeing an untainted creation all around him. God gave Adam his first breath. And in that first breath where Adam himself takes that breath into his nostrils, uh, can you imagine the blessing of smelling the fragrant flowers and just the, 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 everything that's just perfect there um, in the garden? And the fruit trees, smelling the fruit and everything. Um, I know in California, sometimes we, we, there's this one place where we go to the beach and we drive by this in September. I remember we drive by this, this one orchard. We always have a drive by and it's an apple orchard. And man, in September, you just smell the fruit. You could smell the apples. It's like such a wonderful smell. And you can just imagine Adam for the first time smelling all these different fragrances. And then feeling that tropical warmth of the ground before beneath his feet and and hearing all these fascinating sounds of paradise you know all the animals around around him and everything and uh you think about it god's just preparing this thing his creation it's not just for him like oh man that's really i really want to make that pretty you know i really want to taste what so that the fruit tastes like i've had a hankering forever for this you know no he's created all this for you and i for adam and eve for mankind. And think about this. God is creating a place for you and I in heaven. And it's like, man, I can't wait till they get up there to see this. Remember when Paul, he, he, he's, many people believe it was him. He's saying, I know a man who, you know, a certain amount of time ago, he was translated up into the third heaven. Uh, a lot of people believe that was when Paul was, uh, I think it was at Derby or Lystra, and he got stoned by the crowds that were against him, and he, and he was left for dead. And it's many people believe at that point, Paul received that vision, he was translated up, and the Bible says in the third heaven, he was up to heaven. And what did it say? It says he was amazed by the things he heard. Not even the things he saw, or just the things he heard, just the sounds that he heard, or maybe the words that were spoken, or the worship that was going on up there. And uh, and then he says, you know, and that would and that transformed Paul. And so he comes, he comes back, and man, he's, he says, but man, can you imagine if you had a taste of heaven and then and then God left you on earth? What how that would feel and how you would look at things differently? And Paul says, "Man, to prevent my from being too boastful, man, God gave me this this thorn in the flesh to buff a messenger of Satan to buffet me, so I wouldn't become too proud." But think about that: the things that Adam heard, the things that you and I are going to see, that God is preparing for us, and that's just it's just a picture here. I think of what the Lord God is doing here, man. Wait till Adam sees all this. And yet, God knew that Adam would sin against him. God knew that Adam would rebel against him. He knew that before he created him. And he already had a plan and a purpose to redeem him. God knows you're in my life. He knows our future. He knows, he knows your heart right now, and he knows your heart tomorrow. He knows you better than you know yourself, and he still loves you. No matter the times that we fail him, he still loves us. Why don't you stand up? Let's go, Lord, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this morning and just for being able to be in your word and to, just to reflect on the history, the, the, the story of creation. And Lord, I thank you that it's not a fairy tale. Lord, I thank you that, uh, Lord, it's, it's, uh, when we see, we see the fossil records, we see uh, things around us, Lord, and it, and it just fits with what the Bible says happened because we know it's true, Lord God. And so we thank you for giving us the story behind the story, Lord God. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here this morning, Lord. I pray, Lord God, that you would just bless them this week. Lord, may they be just in awe of your creation and just understand that, Lord, you've created them for a plan, with a plan and for a purpose, Lord God. And may we just live our lives for you this coming week. We thank you for your word. I pray your blessing upon your people, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.